Welcome to your number one source of information on women's pelvic health. On this podcast, you will hear from medical experts, pelvic health professionals, holistic healers, and patients themselves in order to learn and understand everything there is to know about regaining and maintaining your pelvic health and becoming your own best advocate for your pelvic floor, the most vital part of our bodies as women. All of the conversations are intimate, raw, and unedited in order to deliver the most authentic information possible. I am so excited to finally be partnering with my new favorite company, Good Clean Love. Good Clean Love is a feminine hygiene product company made with love by women for women. What is so genius about this company is that not only are their products organic and non-toxic, which we know is so important, but each and every product is scientifically advanced formulated by Johns Hopkins scientists to biomatch the vaginal pH. The reason this is so important is because the vaginal pH needs to remain low in order for our vaginas to remain healthy. There are so many factors that can disrupt our vaginal pH that can raise the pH level, making us more susceptible to infections, to vaginal dryness, to pelvic pain. Some of these factors include semen. So when we have sex, semen raises our pH. Um, When we are stressed, our pH gets thrown out of balance. When we have our period, our pH gets thrown out of balance. When our hormones are disrupted, our pH gets thrown out of balance. When our pH gets thrown out of balance, we are more susceptible to yeast infections, bacterial vaginosis, to UTIs. This was a huge part of my problem. My my gut was was totally out of whack and my vaginal pH was totally out of whack. So I was getting so many vaginal infections, which was making my pelvic pain so much worse. Since I have found these products, I have not had one infection. And this is, I'm being so honest, these products have changed my life. Like I don't have fear anymore that I'm going to have sex and get an infection, that I'm going to work out and get an infection, that I'm going to do all of these normal day-to-day activities and get an infection. I have three Good Clean Love products that I use religiously. These three products are one, the Restore Moisturizing Vaginal Gel. This is a pH balance moisturizing gel that keeps your pH low, eliminates odor, relieves dryness and discomfort, and restores and promotes a healthy vaginal flora by mimicking the body's natural pH levels, salt balance, and lactic acid produced by healthy lactobacilli. I use this product religiously after I have sex and also just multiple times a week in order to make sure that my vaginal flora is healthy. The second product I use religiously are the Rebalance pH Balanced Feminine Wipes. So I put these in all of my bags and I use them after I work out. I use them after I've had a long day walking around the city and I just am sweaty and want to be careful, make sure that my vaginal flora is healthy. These wipes 
are obviously pH balanced. They are made with premium aloe and soothing botanical extracts. They are also biodegradable and they once again help promote a healthy vaginal ecosystem. Lastly, I use the BioNude Ultra Sensitive Personal Lubricant. This is an unflavored, unscented, and pH balanced lubricant that of course, mimics the natural feminine moisture to enhance pleasure and keep the vaginal pH low throughout sex. So this is so important because sex can disrupt the vaginal ecosystem. And for those of us who have sensitive vaginal ecosystems, this product can literally change our lives. It changed mine. So Good Clean Love offers so many products. They offer multiple different types of lubricants, oils, um, body wash. Oh my God, I forgot the body wash that I use every single day. How could I have forgot about that? It is Balanced Moisturizing Personal Wash. So that's the fourth product I use so religiously. And once again, that is gynecologist tested and recommended product that helps clean to refresh and eliminate odor while maintaining optimal vaginal pH levels. It is free of artificial fragrances, soaps, parabens, and gently cleanses, moisturizes, and balances the vagina. I want to thank Good Clean Love for creating this incredibly genius product line and for making me feel so good and so healthy that I can now share this information with all of you so that you can feel so good and so healthy. What I have to offer all the listeners is 10% off every single order, not just the first order, but every order you place on Good Clean Love's website, you will receive 10% off if you enter the code HANA10 at checkout. That's HANA10, H-A-N-N-A-H, one zero at checkout and the website is good g-o-o-d clean c-l-e-a-n love l-o-v-e dot com so please check out the website try out some products let me know what you think and I hope that they make you feel as good as they make me feel without further ado let's get into this week's episode Today, I am here with Mike Greenwell. Mike has over 25 years of extensive involvement with health and risk communications across the U.S. federal government and the private sector. Mike is responsible for offering a wide, a wide range of services to health-related contracts, especially with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where he served for 14 years as the communications director for two large centers. He serves on numerous boards as well, including the American Heart Association and the Sudden Cardiac Arrest Association, and has served as a senior consultant to the Arthritis Foundation, Chronic Fatigue and Immune Deficiency Syndrome Association, as well as the ICI, of course. So first of all, thank you for taking the time to do this this morning. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And tell us how you got involved in the ICA. So about... Um, 13 or 14 years ago, a company I was working for, a public relations firm, actually bid to do work to build a public awareness campaign for interstitial cystitis. 
um, we won the work and began doing a public awareness campaign for the association. I was involved in that project for about four years. I moved to another company and the business followed me. Um, so I, in total, probably did about 10 years of work as a contractor to the association to do public awareness campaigns. Um, once all of that work ended, um, I couldn't leave, so I joined the board. Mm -hmm. and, and I've been on the board since then. Since then. Yeah. And what what is your work and involvement in the board look like? Like, what is your role? What do you... I'm currently the vice chair. Mm -hmm. um, in a few weeks, I will be the chair of Amazing. the board of directors. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> uh, ask me that question in a few months, and we'll <laughs> see whether I think that's it, it was a good idea. Um, but also, day to day, I'm the chair of the communications committee. And our job is really driving the communication strategy for the association. And that's been uh, the most interesting part of my work thus far, is really trying to coordinate all of our various communications activities, mm -hmm. mostly directed at patients, right. but also at healthcare providers. So what, what are the communications activities mm -hmm. that you're trying to communicate to the patients and the providers? So when, when you have a disease like interstitial cystitis that's poorly understood, mm -hmm. poorly um, communicated to patients, um, and difficult to diagnose, it's important to have a kind of a two-pronged approach. You have to reach the patients, but also healthcare providers. Right. So we kind of have different strategies for both. But for patients, first of all, we don't have much money. Yeah. Um, so our communication strategies need to be um, ones that are very, very cost effective. The good news for us is digital communications has really lowered the price of reaching your target audience. Mm -hmm. We could never afford television. Um, we could probably never afford radio. Um, but digital media, especially social media, we have found is a very efficient way to reach our yeah. patient population. So we're doing quite a bit on things like Facebook, um, where we find a big majority of our patients actually are anyway. On Facebook, yeah. yeah. Um, especially if you're, you know, the disease largely affects women, mm -hmm. does affect men also. Um, and younger women are a, an important target audience for us and they're very active on social media. Mm -hmm. So we have um, a very, we have a paid media campaign on social media, but we also just try as hard as we can with the resources we have to really engage our audience on, on social media. And I always say that, well, I understand all of the, you know, these controversies with social media mm -hmm. and how there's a lot of people feel that it does more harm than good. But yeah. from my experience and from building this podcast and this platform, I've done all of it entirely on social media yeah. with a very little budget. Yep. So. I am like, you know, even though it, social media causes problems for people, like yeah. it also is such a powerful way yeah. to get messages to the world yeah. for essentially no no yeah. cost. Basically for free. For free. Yeah. I mean you need the you need to be sure the information is accurate. Right. But I think the most important part about social media for this disease is the importance of allowing patients to connect with each other mm -hmm. also. This disease is very difficult to live with. Yeah. Um, and people have learned to live with it through trial and error. 
and sharing their stories with other people, do a couple of things. It gives them really important information to help them cope with the disease. But also, I think it keeps people from feeling so, so alone. This mm-hmm. is an isolating disease. Um, if it's, it's a difficult one to talk about because, it's, as they say in the news media, it's a below-the-belt disease. Right. And it's difficult to talk about. Right. Um, so it's, it's something that's it's d- tough to talk to your family about. It's tough to talk to your friends about. But to find another patient is golden for, yeah. for our patient population. And social media allows you to do that to some extent. Mm-hmm. So that's and why it's so powerful. Yeah. And people also feel comfortable on social media because it's still a private way to talk yeah. to someone. Like exactly. if you see someone post that they have IC or a r- related condition mm-hmm. or symptoms, it's easier to just message them on yeah. Instagram or Facebook than it is to even be in person or to go to a, these events if someone doesn't feel comfortable going to a, a walk or a charity event or a fundraiser yeah. or whatever it is. Like mm-hmm. Instagram is still pretty private and yeah. helpful yep. for patients. Yeah. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about the research that is currently being worked on uh, for IC? First of all, I'd like to say there's not nearly enough. Yeah. Um, it, it's an illness that's difficult to talk about, and it's also difficult to advocate mm-hmm. for. Um, poorly understood, not a lot of awareness about how many people are involved, so we need much more. And if we had more resource, resources, we would be funding much more research. Yeah. Um, just kind of what is out there right now, though, um, for instance, we're one of our board members um, is driving some research at her university. Um, can't talk too much about the findings mm-hmm. yet because they're still being developed, but it's a really important look at how some patients with interstitial cystitis are coping with the illness and, and the strategies that they're using to cope with it. And we feel like that kind of research needs to be done. What are successful strategies? And how can we disseminate the information about those successful strategies to other patients? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that research needs to be done. In the research world, you know, that can be called qualitative research. Right. You're not really counting how many people have it. That's important to know and who those people are. But I think as important is to get that kind of qualitative information about what their quality of life is like and mm-hmm. how they're coping with the disease. And what are your thoughts on the fact that I guess the number of patients who have IC ranges from 3 million to 8 million, mm-hmm. but that's diagnosed yeah. IC. So yeah. I was just talking to Abigail about this briefly, but then there's m- probably, there are d- definitely are millions of other women and men who have IC, but just haven't been to a doctor that diagnoses yeah. them, quote unquote, with yeah. it. So I, I would think that that affects the ability for researchers to conduct research because there actually are so many more people who have the condition but doctors aren't diagnosing these people right and and as we know it takes a really long time for folks to get diagnosed also and they Mm -hmm. get misdiagnosed right inappropriately treated for a long time so that yeah that makes it difficult also there is another study going on right now that the centers for disease control and prevention is funding to better characterize the number of people Mm -hmm. the study isn't finished but should be fairly soon to count the number of people who are diagnosed uh, and get a better picture of who they are 
gender, age, at diagnosis, mm. ethnicity, so we can begin to kind of zero in on who exactly does have the disease. And hopefully we'll have a more solid number so we're not giving this huge range. Right. And maybe get a more solid number of how many people actually have it. That that research will probably be available in the next couple of years, and I think that'll be helpful. Helpful, yeah. yeah. And then another question that I have for you that I think, um, well, it just stood out to me because when I was reading about you and the work that you do, the Chronic Fatigue and Immune Deficiency mm-hmm. Syndrome Association, mm-hmm. I know from my experience and my research and talking to, to patients and having this podcast that, and talking to lots of doctors that I see in vulvodynia and all of these pelvic floor dysfunction conditions often come hand in hand with chronic yeah. autoimmune yeah. issues, whether yeah. it's rheumatoid arthritis or mm-hmm. fatigue or, I mean, you name it, it's usually not just IC that, that the patient right. has. So right. does your work with, with this association kind of overlap a little bit with with like I see it I don't know how to properly phrase that question so I started um I kind of have a passion for these illnesses that Mm -hmm. are poorly understood so as my background reflects I worked for a number of years in the issue of chronic fatigue syndrome Mm -hmm. another really difficult illness to to do to raise public awareness about um difficult to talk about right poorly diagnosed hard to, i would assume that's incredibly very, hard to diagnose very difficult. like how really do you diagnose chronic kind fatigue? of eliminate everything else right you know there's there's really no uh, test right to see to indicate that you've got chronic fatigue syndrome but i find that there were great similarities in talking to the medical community about it first of all chronic fatigue syndrome was largely impacting women um, the epidemiology of it's not clear clearly understood either but a lot of women younger women also um, and their experience with the medical profession was kind of similar to IC patients frequently told they were just depressed crazy um, get on with your life mm-hmm. you're focused too much on this um, things that are not helpful um, so working with the medical community I found was was kind of similar when I was working in chronic fatigue syndrome we did a lot of research with doctors mm-hmm. um, talk to them, in-depth interviews, focus groups, that kind of thing. And something that I think applies to interstitial cystitis and chronic fatigue syndrome was, I'll I'll never forget a doctor telling me this, and we were interviewing him about chronic fatigue syndrome, and he said, doctors are problem solvers, and if we don't have an answer to the problem, we don't want to deal with it. We just want that patient to go away. Um, And I think that applies to interstitial cystitis too. If you have the same patient coming back to you constantly without getting better, that's a difficult scenario for a doctor. And I think a lot of these um, difficult to diagnose diseases share that. Mm-hmm. They, they, and people get really frustrated with their medical providers if they don't have answers also. But it's difficult for the for the doctor too. I don't know what to do. Right. I don't have an answer. Right. And that's, that's why we need lots more research and and lots more answers for our patients. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Would you say that the biggest obstacle in funding research for IC is the fact that it is so hard to diagnose? Yeah, and it's so poorly understood. And poorly understood. Just getting getting interest. Uh You know, for diseases where, for example, a pharmaceutical company can immediately see a really large market, 
there's no shortage of clinical trials for those kinds of illnesses, heart disease, diabetes, the ones that we know are so prevalent, so many people have, and it's openly discussed. There's much more interest in those, and you can just see if you look at the number of clinical trials going on for um, new drugs, mm. new therapies, new devices in that space, there's no shortage. But for a disease like interstitial cystitis that's poorly understood, not enough awareness about, there's just very little yeah. going on. Do you think that since it's obviously a very slow process, but since that women are, I think the younger generation is starting to talk about mm -hmm. this a little bit more and starting to become more comfortable with talking about below the belt mm -hmm. conditions and, mm -hmm. and problems, do you think that that will help eventually to have more research conducted or to get more doctors to understand the conditions and I think so mm -hmm. I, mean, I think it can only help right uh, but we still have to get the research community engaged in this the, the federal government National Institutes for Health they mm -hmm. do some um, but much more yeah. is needed and so we need all of those entities to to have awareness but you know frankly they also are businesses mm. who need to see that they can actually make some money in this space so it's a complicated story mm-hmm is there any advice that you could give to either the patients that are listening or even if it's healthcare providers, practitioners, because there are a lot of doctors and physical therapists that listen as well? What would, what would uh, some advice be if you had to give? There is information available good mm -hmm. through us, the Interstitial Cystitis Association. We have great information yeah. on our website. But there's also... I mean, it's easy to find this research now. It just takes a little time on the internet, um, looking through the resources that healthcare providers have to look for good information about how to treat a patient. There is much more out there than most people realize. You just have to be very intentional in going after to mm -hmm. going after that information and finding it. And patients can find it also, mm -hmm. just through searching through um, some of the best medical sites. Um, and looking for the kind of information that can help you. It is out there. Not enough, but there is information there. And also finding a doctor, a urologist that understands the condition because yeah. yeah. a lot don't. Yeah, and that's where social media can help too. You yeah, know, definitely. Connecting with people living in a certain area mm -hmm. who have you successfully um, connected with in your area. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of this information. It's helpful and important to have your perspective on the podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you.